Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. 2020 has been a year of joy. And I know many of you laugh, but that was the theme we started out with this year. As a church, planning for 2020 at the close of 2019, we boldly declared that 2020 would be a year of clarity for North Maine, that it would be a year of joy. We felt God was leading us into this year not only with a sense of anticipation of what might come positively, but also that we would grow in ways that we never understood. Here we are in the last month of 2020. And to say it's been, right? (laughs) To say it's been challenging is not really saying a whole lot. It's been difficult. It's been hard in many ways, not just because of a pandemic or an election year, because some of you have gone through some horrible tragedies this year that, that aren't, even affected, or aren't even affected by the pandemic or any other thing, but just because life has a way of knocking us down. And um, here's one of the things I know. We had a prayer time in the green room off the side of the stage here this morning as a worship team, and uh, I had a conversation with one of the band members for our worship team, a slight conversation, wasn't really in depth, but, you know, uh, I jokingly, sarcastically said, oh, it's been a year of joy, and uh, something to the effect of how uh, it's really not been joyful, and, you know, uh, how... So have I preached something that I didn't really believe? That was a question. And uh, no, it's not that. I'll just say it's been a challenge to muster up joy this year. I don't know if it's been that way for you guys. It has been that way for me. Um, But I find it interesting as we close out this year and how God is directed, even in this Advent season, we're looking at the challenges that come along with faith, and faith is something that should help to produce joy in our lives, right? But what we've been learning over the past several weeks and leading into the Advent season is that faith is a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. If faith was meant to be easy, it wouldn't be a fight, would it? There wouldn't be these analogies or images of fighting the good fight, running this race with endurance, boxing, you know, these, these images that Paul gives us in his letters in the New Testament. Faith, if it was supposed to be easy, wouldn't be a fight. It wouldn't be challenged. It wouldn't be tested. But honestly, it wouldn't grow. Oftentimes, not just in my 20-some years of ministry, but even prior to that, as a youth, I would have people say, if God is all good and all loving, then why doesn't he eradicate all the evil, suffering, and troubles in the world? 
And I don't mean to get really philosophical on you here, but let's ask this question real quick before I get into today's message. What is the best world that God could create and him be complete 100% love? The Bible tells us that God is love. So if that is true, that God is love, and if it is true that he exists, then the question is, if God is love, and we know that the very essence of love is sacrificial, unconditional, and selfless, then what perfect world could God create under those conditions? Philosophers for millennia have debated these issues. What is the best of all worlds that ever could be created by a God like that? And so, we go through the process of critical thinking, which is not in great supply in our academic institutions. I was raised in a day and age, probably one of the last generations that was raised to think critically. And what that means is, don't just buy everything hook, line, and sinker. Argue things from both perspectives. Critical thinking is, all right, I'm going to step in your shoes for a minute. I'm going to look from this perspective. And I'm going to argue against my perspective. I know my perspective, but in order to be a critical thinker, I'm going to look at this thing from all different perspectives because I want to know the truth. Because if Jesus, who says he is the way, the truth, and the life, is truly the way, the truth, and the life, truth will be made known regardless of what area or what position I look at it. So what is the best of all worlds? God could have created a world in which there was no evil at all or the possibility for evil. If there was no possibility for evil, meaning nobody could become evil or do something that was deemed evil, and evil is just the opposite of what God desires for us, then what kind of a world would that be like to live in? I hear a lot of people say it would be great. So let me get this straight. If you had zero choice in the matter at all, if your possibility for choosing the contrary of good was ever taken out, that would be the best of all worlds. Is that right? But see, that would negate the very essence of who God is. God would not be God if he didn't give us a choice to love him in return. Okay. Am I losing you? For those of you at home, I can't see the looks on your faces, so I'm going to assume you're hanging right there with me. One of the things we know about love, and if God is love and God is real, then it always gives a choice. Love never forces itself on anybody, nor does it force the object of its love to love in return. Well, God created evil. Did he create evil or did he create the possibility for evil to exist? See, evil is the choice to choose to go against God. Adam and Eve had a choice. They had a choice. Could they choose to live with God, walk with him in the cool of the garden, see him face to face, spend time with him in this intimate setting of beauty and love and awesomeness where there was no sorrow, tears, suffering, or anything and yet there was this tree 
which you hear me talk about an awful lot because it goes back to this moment in human history. There's this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whether you believe it was a real tree or not, we do know that there was something at the beginning of human history, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. People say, oh, it's a poetic allegory of right and wrong. I tend to think it was a real tree with real human beings. But let's set that argument aside for the moment and say they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God had told them at the very beginning, or actually he told Adam specifically, directly, do not eat of this fruit of this tree because when you eat it, you will die. Don't do it. Okay? So it's not that God's giving them an option. He's saying, I'm choosing you. I want you to choose me. There's a tree. Don't eat it. Now, if he took that possibility out of the garden, that would not be a loving action. If you truly want to know love, it's not an emotion that gives you the butterflies in the stomach. See, the kind of love that God is and God expects from us and for us and for us to give to others is unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love. It's this love in, in the Bible known as achava. Say achava. You got to get that in the back. Achava love. And we translate that into Greek as agape or agapeo love. Say agapeo. Very good. You guys are learning language today. All right. And this, this kind of love is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. And the only way we can take that love or to receive that love is to be open to it. See, God created us. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. Why? Because he loved us and continues to love us. And he continues to love us even if we choose our own tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever that vice is for you. He loves you. He loves me. But we can't love the way he desires for us to love until we receive his love. We can only love because he first loved us and gave himself for us through Jesus Christ. The best of all worlds is a world where there is a choice. I've had this long conversation with many a people. Why doesn't God stop all the evil? in the world. It's because he's patient and long-suffering, not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to receive eternal life. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. God is long-suffering in the sense that he allows certain things to continue in this world because he knows there are some right on the edge of making that decision. And if he were to cut it off now, he'd cut off the chance for anybody to choose him. But there is coming a day, we are told, when he will return and put an put a end to all of this stuff. But for now, we wait with long-suffering and patience, knowing that he is long-suffering and patient, not willing that anyone die, but that all receive eternal life, though he doesn't force that decision on anyone. Now, how does this play into the Advent story? You think of Mary, a virgin, who we talked about just a moment ago, probably around the age of 14 or 15 years old. 
An angel of the Lord, we know as Gabriel, comes to her and says, uh, you have found favor with God, and you're going to conceive and give birth to a child. Well, how can I give birth to a child? I've never slept with a man. I've never had sexual relations with a man. Plus, in that culture, to be pregnant out of wedlock was, I wouldn't say a death sentence, but you would be cut off from the community. Think of the risk. Do you, it, it, it's, it's kind of laden with joy and struggle. You're going to bear a child. But what will everybody else say? What will Joseph say? I mean, we're just engaged to be married and I'm pregnant and he's going to believe a story that I'm coming to him. <laughs> pregnant? And that the angel of the Lord appeared and told me that I was going to conceive? <laughs> How would that go over today? It would probably not go over today either. People look at you over their glasses or like, uh-huh, tell me another one. But it was even more risky then for Mary. But then the same angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream, says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And think of the risk for Joseph and his reputation. One of two things can happen. So you slept with Mary before you were married? That goes against all cultural norms that's sinful and wrong. That could have been the speculation by the general public. Or for him to take Mary as his wife when the child she was carrying wasn't his own was just as bad. There was no good prospect for either of those two. But one of the things I know about God is that he calls us not at the most opportune times to do some of the most inopportune things. Rarely does God call you into service or call you into anything when it is on your perfect schedule. And so he calls Adam and Eve. He calls Mary and Joseph. And they carry this burden, not the child is not the burden, but they carry this burden of what their reputations will look like in a community where people will scoff at this. And so they go off because a census has been called to their hometown of Bethlehem for the census. And here they are in Bethlehem, not in their home, well, that's their hometown, but in the place where they were living was Nazareth in the region of Galilee, which is further north. So they make this trek down there. Imagine being pretty pregnant, making a trek on the back of a donkey. We think we have it bad riding in a bumpy vehicle, right? She's riding a donkey over these horrible pathways for I don't know how many miles over several days' journey. Oh, joy. She's carrying the very essence of joy in her womb, and yet her circumstances are not joyful, are they? So they traverse, if you will, all the way down to Bethlehem. We know that it was 
over, not overpopulated, but because of the census, there were many people in town, so much so that she ends up having to bed down in a stable. A stable is not like a barn in our day and age. It was more of a hewn-out cave in the side of a cliff or uh, something of the sort. And the manger is a feeding trough. The feeding trough itself would have also been hewn out of stone where you pour water in or feed into. And it says, in that space is where she gave birth to a child. Infant mortality rates in that day and age, and even in some places that are very similar, are off the charts. And I've told you before, they don't name children today in some third world countries until they're about three or four years old because of the infant mortality rates being so high. So to add all of this burden onto their backs and then to give birth to a baby in a place where there are animals who are bedding down for the night, to wrap him in strips of cloth and lay him in this feeding trough was probably not Mary's expectation of how she would give birth to this son. But it's how she did it. It says in that time when she gave birth, she pondered not only these things, she spent time pondering things throughout the course of her life once the angel of the Lord came to her. She pondered. What does that mean, she pondered? It means to think deeply on something. I'm, I'm going to not just reminisce, I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to think through these things that's going on. What's happening? Why, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? What does this look like going forward? How will this all play out? Have you ever found yourself in a situation that seems very impossible or difficult and you just can't see the next step out of the situation or you can't know what the next steps are going to be and so you're faced with the choice. Do I just give up and throw in the towel or do I press on? Well, thank goodness Mary pressed on and Joseph pressed on. They didn't know every step of every situation but they moved at the direction of God. Before the child turned two years of age, they got notification that King Herod, who was in power at the time, uh, was extremely jealous uh, and thought that if there's this king that's now been born in this town called Bethlehem, I'm going to put a stop to this because there's not going to be any competition with me. And so he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and kill every child from, uh, child, every male child from the age of two and younger. And that's what happens. Now, that was bad enough. We think it was ten, you, you might think it was tens of thousands of kids. Bethlehem is a very, very small community. There's estimates that maybe there were 20 to 40 kids, give or take, that were killed during that time. But before that happened, Jesus and his family were notified and they were sent off to Egypt. Isn't it interesting that they were sent to Egypt and then eventually, they were brought back. But they weren't brought back to Bethlehem. They were brought back to Nazareth, which is where Jesus was raised. See, the evidence of faith is what I want to talk to you about briefly this morning. Now, I realize I'm a little behind the eight ball, but we're going to get there today. We're going to get there in lightning speed. What is the evidence of faith? The evidence of faith is joy. That is our main point this morning. The evidence of faith 
is joy. And we're going to find that out by looking specifically at this passage from 1 Peter. This is not typically an Advent or Christmas passage. This is a passage from Peter's letter after Jesus has risen from the grave, ascended to heaven, and now Peter and the rest of the disciples are disseminating the good news in all the areas where they are ministering. One of the things I, I want to tell you about faith, which I've already told you about, is it's this purifica- purification process. Faith purifies the individual. When your faith is tested, like Mary and Joseph's were, they were purified. They grew stronger. It's like gold. Remember me telling you about gold? It goes through a purification process. The higher the carrot, the more pure it is. And what do they do to make gold more pure? You have to uh, forge it in a furnace until it melts. When it melts, the impurities rise to the top, right? They rise to the top and they take this, almost like this little scraper thing, to scrape what they call the slag or that waste material off the top. Now, they will go through the refining process over and over again to get the purest of golds that they can get. They will keep melting it and getting the slag off. They'll let it solidify again. They'll melt it and get the slag off to get it more and more pure. Well, Peter tells us about this purification process as well in this passage. So let's look at this today. Starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to look at verse 3 to verses 12. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change or decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm not going to stop and unpack it right now. We'll do that in just a moment. Let's move on to verse 6. So be truly glad. The word for glad is kind of along the lines of be joyful, rejoice, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. Does this sound similar to James chapter 1? Be glad, be joyful, even though you encounter trials. These trials, verse 7, will show that your faith is genuine. The same word used for genuine is used in James's letter as well. For endurance, it's, they're kind of similar in feature. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you as much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you may not, uh, excuse me, though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. See, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about his gracious, this gracious salvation prepared for you. See, they wondered uh, 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 what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering 
in his great glory afterward. He's talking about Isaiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He's talking about these prophets that were foreshadowing a day, and Isaiah wrote 700 years before the birth of Christ. He's, he's foreshadowing this event that's going to come, this salvation of God that will come to the earth. They were under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, and they could only perceive of a day that would come well beyond their time. That now Peter is saying, that time is now. He did come. And yet he will come again. Verse 12, they were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. They don't have Netflix, Amazon Prime, or Hulu. The angels are on the edge of their seats watching this unfold. And when God says, okay, hey, I want you to go down and take care of this, you bet, I'm on my way. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to be a part of this story. The angels are eagerly watching and anticipating and watching the story of good news and, and the faith of God's own people who are pressing in instead of giving up in the midst of trials. What about those who don't know Christ? Then it is our job, church, to make disciples. All of our responsibilities, not just those who are gifted to do so, or who are gifted communicators, or who have degrees. It is all of our jobs as believers in Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. Does it mean you need to leave Butler to go to some other far-off country? The nation you may be called to is your next-door neighbor. It may be just your street, your workplace, and no, it doesn't mean you have to carry around tracks. If that's your way of doing it, the God bless you. But it does mean you need to be a living testimony of that faith alive in you to those around you. Yes, use words. But live a life that reflects the glory of God even without words. Key point, the evidence of faith is joy. Let's look at this real quick. It is by God's great mercy that we have been born again. What does Peter mean when he says that? Well, born again is a terminology that we see not just in Peter's letter here, but we see it for the first time specifically in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees that was alive during the time of Christ, when Christ was bodily alive before the crucifixion, comes to Jesus in the darkness of night. Now, he comes to Jesus in the darkness of night because Nicodemus is like straddling this fence of faith and belief. Is he really the Messiah? But the higher-ups in the Pharisaical uh, tradition, in many of the religious leaders, are rejecting the message of Jesus, are rejecting Jesus as Messiah, and are trying to find a way to get him to trip up on some technicality of the law of Moses so they can call him in contempt and call him into what they call blasphemy so they can arrest him. But Nicodemus is like, I don't know, guys. 
But he won't say that out loud to the Pharisees. There's a small circle of Pharisees and religious leaders that are like, I don't know. I think he could be the Messiah. And so Nicodemus, as to save reputation and to save face, comes to Jesus in the darkness of night, John chapter 3. And this is what happens in that scenario. Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. We all know. Who's he talking about? Well, his circle of friends know. So there's a group of the Pharisees and religious leaders that are like, okay, I'm pretty sure you're it, but you're not what we were expecting. We know you were born in Bethlehem, which is what the prophet said would happen for the one who was going to be the Messiah. We know that he would come through the line of death. We, we see all of these things lining up. We can't deny it. But you don't look like what we expected. So you got to fill in some of the blanks for us, Jesus. And this is the conversation that ensues. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. You're healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the blind and the deaf and the lame. I mean, it's undeniable. And Jesus replied, well, I, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because he knows that Nicodemus is still blind to certain realities of who he is. And so he's saying, you, in order to truly understand, to have those blanks filled in, have to be born again. And then this conversation ensues. And Nicodemus is like a literalist, as many of us are. Well, how can I be born again? I can't crawl back into the womb. And Jesus, I could see him scratching his head and doing, dude, seriously, come on. You know, don't be absurd, Nicodemus. You were only born once. We're talking about being born of the Spirit. It's, you're born by the water, but you need to be born of the Spirit. And it uses a capital S to denote Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be born again. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. And anytime you hear the words kingdom of God, it's also synonymous with heaven. Those two are not separate. The kingdom of God is the place where God is. Jesus ushered in that kingdom. Nicodemus was standing in front of the king of that kingdom, that king of kings, that Lord of lords, that Isaiah tells us would be born. For unto us a child is born. This child would become a man whose destiny was to take up the sin of the world on the cross. We have the gospel message in the prophets who pointed to the reality of the times we read about in the New Testament. So what day and age do we live in? We live in the last days when Jesus ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit came. It's considered the last days. Well, how many last days are there? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. 
with some of the things we don't understand with human mindset is that a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years. Time is irrelevant to God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And verse 17 is just as rich and just as important to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There will be a judgment, a final judgment, and he will be the arbiter of that justice. Jesus will be. But in the time being, he is not the judge. Instead, he sits at the right hand of the Father advocating for you and I. He is, in essence, our attorney arguing our case before the Father. Does this make sense? He's our advocate. But he will be our judge. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Secondly, Actually, let me do this. How is one born again? Listen to what Romans says. Romans 10, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, born again. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. God looks upon the heart. Others can judge you and say, well, you're not a Christian. But God knows the truth. Others can look at you and say, oh, they're a Christian. They're really good people. But God knows the truth. God looks upon the heart. It is by confessing with your mouth, it's by, excuse me, believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, Paul writes, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. That trust is the same thing as faith. Faith and trust interchanged here. Jew and Gentile, he goes on to say, are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. And this is one of those passages that I remember growing up in a hellfire and brimstone church. Is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on them, not just a certain few, not just a select few, not just 144,000 as some traditions believe, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. This is an aspect of salvation that is the here and now, but there is a yet-to-come salvation. There are not two salvations. Hear me out on this and don't walk away from here thinking, well, Brandon told me there are two salvations. No, there are two aspects to salvation. The one aspect is being born again in the here and now. But you are also being saved to something. As much as you are being saved from sin and death, you are being saved to something else. I'm going to talk about that in a second because Peter talks about that in this passage. Secondly, let's look at the second point. Our endurance and trials that we face shows that our faith is genuine. Again, if you remember from James 1, the message last week, you remember the word translated as endurance can also mean patience. And like James, Peter reminds us that our endurance or our patience during trials that we face can be faced with joy, knowing that our endurance during those trials shows that our faith is genuine. 
And also like James, Peter shows that the end result of our endurance is a faith that is mature and complete. What is complete? We talked about that last week too. Complete means whole. It means all the gaps are filled in. It means completely whole. If you stick to your faith through tough times, if you trust in God through the most difficult times in life, you are being formed into a complete faithful person who hasn't turned their back on God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains it this way. It says, a living hope results in a present joy. In this, likely, in this likely refers to the truths mentioned in verses 3 and 5 in Peter's passage here. Peter encouraged his readers to put their knowledge into practice. You can say you know a lot, but unless you put that knowledge into practice, it doesn't become wisdom. Their response to the tremendous theological truths taught so far should be that they would greatly rejoice. Knowledge alone cannot produce the great joy of experiential security and freedom from fear in the face of persecution. God's omnipotent sovereignty, ladies and gentlemen, needs to be coupled with human responsibility. Christians are responsible to respond in faith. God has done what he can do to bring salvation to your soul so that you can be born again. And it is by confessing and believing that you are saved. Well, God didn't do this for me. Didn't. What more do you want him to do? I hear people all the time saying, Pastor, he's not fixing this. He's not doing that. He died for you. Well, it wasn't enough. Well, you're stubborn and prideful. And that can't make it into heaven. Now, you might get on to me and say, well, you're condemning me. I'm not condemning anybody to anywhere. But what I do know is that Scripture states there is a right and wrong, a good and bad. And if there isn't the contrary to evil, then what are we here for in this church? It's not about drifting beautifully along on good works. It is all about what he has done through Jesus Christ on the cross that brings salvation. But again, it goes back to what I started out this whole sermon with. Because God is love, he doesn't force that on you. He says, here it is. Will you receive it? The best Christmas gift ever. And you have a choice. You could take that gift and unwrap it and use it to your advantage. Or you could keep it over in the corner wrapped the way we do with a lot of gifts, right? Still in the packaging, still unused, on a shelf somewhere in storage. A gift truly is not a gift until it's open and received. Jesus isn't doing that. If God is so good, if God is so loving, and again, I go back to what more can he do? He's pulled out all the stops. 
the, again, what Peter was saying, the things that the prophets wrote of that could only dream about, we get to experience. And yet, we blindly reject it. Even those in the church. Some of you are in, in as much bondage as you were before you met Christ. You know why? Because you've allowed doubt not only to creep in, but to take root in your life. And when doubt takes root, the expression of doubt comes out as negativity, as bad attitudes. It sometimes comes out in sinful actions that degrade and destroy. The gift is still there. Can be received or rejected. Lastly, the reward for trusting God will be the salvation of your souls. Here's part two. Salvation part one is salvation in the here and now. Jesus came, died on a cross, rose from the grave. He offers us this free gift of salvation through himself so that we can have forgiveness of sins. And so that we won't have to die eternally. I've had people get frustrated with me when I talk about hell. I don't like talking about it. I wish it weren't a reality. But my understanding of Scripture is there is a place called hell, which is a place of utter and complete damnation, condemnation, and complete separation from the Almighty God, who is completely loving and good. Hell is the absence of good. It's the absence of love. It's the absence of any good thing. You think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They are not there at all, not even in a little bit of supply. Well, Brandon, you're just scaring people. No, I, I, I'm not trying to. But the reality is, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this. I know a lot of pastors that won't touch hell with a 10-foot pole. But we, it's, Jesus tells us through his disciples, when Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of what? Will not prevail against it. If you read the language there specifically, it means that the church is on the offense, not the defense. Did you know that? And why in our day and age is the church always on the defense? Because the enemy is a great deceiver. He's the master of confusion. And if he could trip the people of God up to make them believe they're on the losing side, he'll do it every time. Church, you're on the winning side. What we are being saved to is this place called heaven, where there is no sin, sorrow, death. It is not a time and a place way down the road. It is a current reality where God is in his fullest sense of his glory. We are being saved to that. When will that happen, and when will the problem of sin and death be cast into the lake of fire, as Revelation 19 and 20 tells us? Because sin and death and Satan and evil and all of this will be cast into a lake of fire for eternity. 
never, ever, ever again to have any control or any influence on any of God's people again. And I say God's people because that is our reward for believing and trusting and faith. And therein lies our joy in the temporary trials we face in the here and now. Because we know that though we are saved now from sin and death, we are saved to heaven for eternity. That we will live in a kingdom of true righteousness and glory and goodness and love. Where there is no sin, sorrow, death, pain, tears. Where the things you face now, you will never face again that are bad. At least one of you claps for that. There is our hope and therein lies our joy. So as Peter, who was persecuted and died for his faith, and as Paul, who was beheaded for his faith, and as many of the followers of Christ have believed from the centuries then till now, and are still now dying for their faith, believed and marched into that death with their heads held high, not prideful, but high and humble, knowing that you can take this body, but you can't take my soul. Ladies and gentlemen, church, here's the deal. What is the evidence of your faith today? What is the evidence of your faith? As our worship team comes forward to close this out this morning, is the evidence of your faith the joy in your person? Joy is not being happy all the time. Happiness and joy are two different things. They co-mingle with each other from time to time, but they are not synonymous. See, joy can come even when everything in your life is crashing down. Because at least for the believer in Christ, we know that these light and temporary trials, these frustrations, these difficulties, the sickness, the disease, all of that stuff, regardless of if I understand it or why God hasn't taken it away, I'm going to continue to trust in him because I know that no matter what happens to this body, because of my faith, which has been tested and remains sure and foundational for my life, I can have joy. Okay, what's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90 years on this earth compared to eternity? It seems so long that 2020 seems like it has droned on forever. And we're now coming to the end and we're like, woohoo! Guess what our theme is for next year? Do you remember? Peace. Peace. <laughs> and as joy has been tested in 2020, do we think that peace might be tested in 2021? Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. I'm going into 2021 with my eyes wide open. And with the reality that we are focused on peace, knowing that that peace may be tested just as our joy has been tested. But one of the things that I find so amazing that the scripture tells me about peace is that it can pass 
understanding. What it means is it can, it can boggle the mind. The one who has true unadulterated peace from God, the Prince of Peace himself, Though the world around me rages, I can sleep in the bow of that boat like Jesus did whenever the waves were crashing over the sides and the disciples were, Jesus, how can you sleep during this? Because I'm at peace. Where's your faith? Peace be still. (laughs) I hope that the evidence of faith in your life is joy. If there's anything you've learned this year, I hope you've learned that joy doesn't come easy, but it's still good. It's a result of one who is firmly planted in Christ because they know that this is temporary, but his kingdom is forever. If if this message has resonated with you and you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on you right now, and some of you may not even know what that means, it's the fluttering of the heart. Like, I feel, I don't know, but I feel like I need to do something. Um, And you get wiggly and wriggly in your seat and you're breaking out in the sweat. That happens. That means the Holy Spirit might be working on you. It's not a manipulation tactic. You still have a choice. You can say, yeah, no, thanks, but no thanks. But if you come to my right, your left, this altar is open. We call it the non-social distancing altar, <laughs> for lack of better terms. Because when you come to my right, your left, you're signifying you want somebody to come and pray with you. And we have a prayer team that's willing and able to come and pray with you and walk you through whatever it is you're struggling with, the confusion, the questions, and to pray with you. If you want to pray alone, you can come to my left or right. This is the social distancing altar. You are welcome to come here. Please space yourself out in a comfortable manner, and you reckon with God the way you need to. But do you have to come to these spaces? No. Those of you at home can pray at the foot of your bed. You could pray next to your couch, wherever you are. If you feel this, the Holy Spirit is with you there as much as he is in this space right now. And so I ask that you would be obedient to the calling of the Spirit on your life. And from this day forward, let the evidence of that faith spring forth in action, and in how you live your life. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your goodness, by your grace, by your mercy. We're humbled, though we don't know all the answers, by the evidence that faith brings us to in the reality of who you are. And God, we submit to your will and your ways in our life. And that means we reject our own selfish wants and desires. Our only desire is what you desire from this point forward. I pray that the evidence of faith in my life and our lives in this place and at home is the Holy Spirit living in and through us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. 
Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.